You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you all. Great to see you this morning. Uh, this morning, what we're going to do after our service today is we're, gonna, uh, we're having the grand opening of our last and our largest existing facility on the campus. Thanks to all of you who have given and served uh, to help make that happen. We're opening up our next generation building, and we're so grateful for that. So let's take a moment to thank the Lord for that. Thank you for that. So you'll get to see it. Come on in uh, after service. We've got a bunch of stuff set up for the kids. So after service, make your way over there. It's really, really exciting to be able to have a a facility for our kids, our youth. And so uh, we're continuing. We've utilized the existing kid space as well, but this is additional space. So that'll help us out tremendously. Uh, You might notice the box on the stage. Food drive is going on during the month of November. If you want to grab a box, you can pick it up after service. Uh, We're helping out food insecure families in the Deer Valley Unified School District every year. We do that and they make use of it. So just pick up a box at your convenience if you'd like. It's got all the lists on it. So make sure you buy the stuff in it because it's non-perishables. And uh, then we'll get that to a family in need this season. And thank you all who have already grabbed a box and filled it up. It's a great thing to do with the kids and the family all together. Well, um, last but not least on announcements, real quick, um, but um, I want to say pause for a moment and say special thanks to all who've served in the military. November 11th uh, marks Veterans Day. And so if you've served in the military or your family is in the military, would you stand up just for a moment and let us thank you for your service? Uh, thank you very much. Stand, please. Thank you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, service and dedication, the faithfulness of the men and women who have served in our country uh, to protect in freedom. And we cherish that freedom this morning and through the gathering of of this congregation to teach and openly confess and worship you, Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you for uh, this morning. We pray that you'd use it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen, amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about blind spots. Uh, If you've got a Bible, we're in John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. And what we're going to look at this morning is the issue of blind spots. So let me just jump into that topic for a moment. Uh, Medically speaking, when I say the word blind spot, it refers to the spot where your optic nerve connects to the retina and has no light-sensitive cells, so you can't see anything in the blind spot, medically speaking. Uh, Practically speaking, if I say blind spot, you think probably of your car. Uh, Some of you have vehicles where there's big blind spots. If you've got a big truck like I do, there's big blind spots. Just the other day, I don't drive very fast on the freeway. I drive very, very slow. Um, And uh, I can easily get into a situation where I miss a, 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 a turn or whatnot. And just, by the way, here's a quick story. It scared me to death. How many of you were out on uh, October 31st, Halloween or Reformation Day, uh, and enjoying just seeing neighbors, greeting kids? Would you raise your hand real high for me? Yeah, it was a ton of fun. We were on our way over to uh, meet somebody uh, over at another neighborhood and do a little trick-or-treating with the kids. I dressed up as Martin Luther. My wife dressed up as a nun. 
we celebrated Reformation Day. We had a blast. I'm on my way over there in a neighborhood I'm not uh, real super familiar with, and I've been a little tired lately. Somebody, I started growing a beard and then said, forget it, I can't grow a beard. Somebody last week thought I was sick. They're like, what's wrong with him? I was like trying to grow the beard. It didn't work out. I shaved it very quickly. But anyway, so I'm tired. I'm driving over there, and uh, there was some construction in this community, and I pulled over, and there was like a blind spot, and I barely missed somebody, and I almost hit him. And I, my truck's just big. I got big mirrors. I couldn't see them. They were in a blind spot. I pull over and I'm driving and uh, I'm at an intersection now and there's construction. And then this car across the way starts flashing their lights at me. And I'm like, well, you know, what's his problem? You know? And little did I know I was in the wrong lane. So probably good idea. He's flashing his lights at me. I don't know what's going on though. This is hindsight's 2020. I make a left-hand turn, a left yield on green in an intersection. I, I can do that even though there's oncoming traffic, but I realize I'm in the wrong lane. So I gas it and move around really quick. And all of a sudden, uh, well, my daughter's in the car with me with our little puppy, uh, little baby pointer we got. His name's Happy. And uh, Happy's in the lap of little Maya, my 11-year-old daughter. And all of a sudden, woo, blue lights. And I'm like, oh, no. So Maya's like, oh, no, Dad, oh, no. And I'm like, yes, I know. And uh, I have firearms in the car. Uh, I have one in the door pocket, one in the glove box. And I'm thinking to myself, this is big trouble. And unfortunately, my truck, the glove box is locked, so my insurance is in there, my registration is in there. And to make matters worse on my truck, I've got these green lights that you can turn on, like neon lights. When I bought the truck, it has all these fancy bling bling lights. I had those on and I'm thinking, I am gonna get arrested tonight. I'm going to jail tonight. I'm thinking, this is not good. So sure enough, I pull over, and instead of, I guess when you get pulled over, you're supposed to pull over on the right-hand side. I pull over, I'm like, I don't want to pull over on the right, because then I don't want the police officer to get into an accident. So I go a little further into a neighborhood, and I take a left, and then I park in a neighborhood, and the police officer gets out of the car very quickly and walks up to the window next to my daughter. My daughter rolls down the window with a puppy. Hi. <laughs> And so that de-armed it, like it de-escalated the situation just a little bit, puppy and little, my sweet little Maya. And he says, sir, do you know what you just did wrong? And I said, I think I did a lot of things wrong. <laughs> and he said to me, he goes, uh, would you step out of the car? I did the whole thing because I put my hands on the steering wheel because I'm thinking, and I'm thinking to myself, should I tell him I have firearms in the car or not? So I'm like, I just sit there for a second with my hands up. He says, would you step out of the car? And I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. So I get out of the car. Then he holds up a flashlight in my eyes. And he says, how much have you had to drink tonight? And I'm like, I haven't had a drink at all. And then he goes, what have you been smoking? And I said, I said I'm a pastor. I don't smoke marijuana. I'm, I'm just going to a friend's house to do a little trick-or-treating. And he goes, he goes, follow my finger. So he does the, have you ever done, has anybody ever done that before? That's scary. I got so nervous. He said, hold your head still, follow my finger, back and forth, don't move your head. Well, there's blue lights in my face. My daughter's sitting there crying, thinking I'm going to jail. And she's sh he's shining the light and he goes to the left. And then so my, I look to the left, but then I get tired and I'm like. <laughs> and he goes, 
you've been drinking. I said, no, I have not. I promise you. And then he goes, then what's wrong with you? I said, I'm stressed. I'm tired. I'm nervous. Long story short, he lets me go. He doesn't give me anything. I'm fine. I get to the house though. My daughter is terrified. And uh, what, what happened? Uh, blind spot. I couldn't see the vehicle that was right next to me, and I just pulled in front of it so fast, and then I go through a, an intersection, I'm in the wrong spot, I'm all messed up. What are blind spots for us? Blind spots are the areas of our life where we're not fully conscious or aware. They're due to our biases or preconceived notions, our values, our experience, our education, our thoughts. Every single one of us have blind spots. Uh, we're like cars who've got blind spots. Some of you say, well, my car doesn't have a blind spot, and you look for a vehicle that doesn't have a blind spot, but at some level, if it's a motorcycle driver next to you or a jogger or a hiker, there's a little spots in there you just can't see. And that's the way it is in our spiritual life as well. I want to read to you a story um, about a significant blind spot in American history. On December 12, 1779, Washington rode through the rain, sleet, and snow to tend to the Mount Vernon estate. He returned home late to find that his dinner guests had already arrived. To avoid a breach in decorum, Washington joined them for the meal while wearing his wet clothes. The following day, freezing temperatures and snow didn't stop Washington from making his usual rounds. Uh, but as Washington tended to the estate, he developed a bad sore throat and it grew worse as the day progressed. That evening, he was unable to read the newspaper aloud to Martha. Washington went to bed on December 13th with a hoarse voice and a raw throat. He awoke the next morning with trouble breathing. Doctors descended to Mount Vernon in hopes of reviving former president in the next few hours. They would try again and again to save Washington's life, but they made the situation worse. Three physicians on the scene attempted to cure Washington with treatments that were common during the 18th century. In particular, they leaned heavily on what's called bloodletting. The withdrawal of blood, which was meant to cure a disease. Uh, Washington advocated for this. He thought it would help, and so did the physicians. By the time Washington died, his physician had removed 80 ounces of his blood. That's about 40% of his body's total volume. And bloodletting wasn't the only treatment they had tried. One doctor recommended a dose of I'm going to mess this up, but uh, mercurious uh, chloride and tartar emetic, uh, which caused violent vomiting, and another doctor ad administered an enema. Dr. James Creck, uh, the physician general for the United States Army, applied toxic tonic directly to the president's throat, which caused blistering. To make matters worse, the doctor also swabbed his throat with a mixture of dried beetles. In addition, they instructed him to drink a blend of butter, molasses, and vinegar, which nearly suffocated the president. By late afternoon, after Washington's fourth bloodletting, in 12 hours, the weakened former president was struggling for air. Imagine that. 
He turned to Crick and said to the doctor, I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. I believe from my first attack that I should not survive it. My breath can't last much longer. George Washington rose from his bed for the final time around 5 p.m. Washington told Tobias Lear, his secretary, I find I'm going. I believe from the first that the, this, this, the, the disorder, my illness, would prove fatal. The president asked Lear to arrange his accounts and settle his books. After reviewing his will, Washington returned to bed. The doctors applied blisters to the president's feet and legs around 8 p.m. About two hours later, Washington gave Lear instructions for his burial. The former president feared being buried alive. He told Lear, don't let my body be put in the vault unless three days after I'm dead. Lear, who found himself unable to speak, overwhelmed with shock, simply nodded his head and Washington asked him, do you understand me? When Lear finally said yes, Washington uttered his last words, it is well. Then at some point between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. on December 14, 1799, George Washington died. Martha Washington, standing at the foot of his bed, repeated what her husband had said before his death, it is well. Ultimately, no one was able to save Washington, and he was laid to rest in his family tomb on December 18, 1779, as news of George Washington's death spread across the country, a period of public mourning was instituted that would, this would last until his next birthday on Fe February 22nd, 1800. Uh, it was immediately clear his death had a major impact on countless people in the nation. Major George, uh, General Henry Lee would later give a memorial eulogy before Congress, remembering George Washington as such, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Indeed, the United States has never forgotten George Washington. What happened? How did the doctors not see that? How could there have been so many blind spots? They didn't know any better. They, they did what they thought they were doing right but there were some significant blind spots. And we've had societal blind spots all throughout our history. There was a time period in American history not too long ago, your grandmothers or your mothers or great-grandmothers, there was a time when smoking was cool and not dangerous. And it was everybody smoked and nobody thought there was any side effects. There was a time in, when... Sprite was prescribed to babies that it would help them get to bed. And there was a time when people thought further back that the earth was flat. Oh, wait a second. A lot of people still believe that. So what are these issues that are going on? Well, we're going to see uh, spiritual blind spots today. And I think everybody has spiritual blind spots. Specifically, we're going to see the life of Pharisees, the religious community, deeply religious, that are disconnected from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, these blind spots. Let me remember, help you set the story. John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. We're closing out this section in Scripture. Jesus has healed a blind man. A blind beggar, he had healed him physically already. He'd fulfilled the messianic prophecies and predictions about his life, uh, about the promise of the Messiah, would come healing the blind. That was 
prophetically said in Isaiah 61. Jesus had fulfilled that when he walked into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah that said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set, uh, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. Jesus was performing miracles. He was healing the blind. He was healing the sick. And he was saying he was the light of the world. And he had healed a man that was born blind. This beggar was physically blind, uh, blind from birth. And Jesus gives them new eyes. He heals them. Jesus is a creator, according to John 1. He speaks and things into existence. He is the one that we find in Genesis, although he's not there. John says he is. Uh, he is a creator. He physically healed the blind. And now what we're going to see is that he's going to spiritually heal the blind as well. And then in contrast, what we're going to see uh, the Pharisees, they had good physical vision, eyesight, um, but they're spiritually blind. And so let's jump into the text, and we'll see this morning a little bit more about what's going on in this spiritual blindness and blind spots uh, that I think that we all have in some form or fashion. Verse 35 um, Jesus had heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Uh, they had cast out the, the blind man because he was talking too much about Jesus. They were uh, put off, and they had put up with him long enough. They didn't want to, they had investigated about this healing. They could tell something had happened. They were very concerned about holding to the traditions and the practices of the religious community for the Jewish faith. And this man was a problem. So they literally physically pick him up and throw him right outside of the synagogue or the temple uh, would be the, actually the right location. They get rid of him. This man's all alone. Imagine that. He was blind his whole life, and now he can see, and then he's kicked out, and his mom and dad don't come to his aid. His mom and dad kind of if you look back in the passage, they kind of, they kind of ostracize him too. And uh, Jesus goes after him. Jesus goes after him. He finds this blind man and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He asks him a question. He has healed his eyes physically and now he's trying to heal him, his heart, spiritually. Verse 36, he answered... And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Uh, the blind man, the formerly blind man, is very receptive to the message of the Messiah because he knows that there has been messianic times. Perhaps he's never seen Jesus before. Um, it seems like he hasn't. He's been blind. But he's heard. People have been talking about Jesus, and if you recall the context, what's going on is Jesus had just spent a week at the temple doing all sorts of incredible preaching and teaching and ministry and controversy, division was rising up, the buzz in the name of Jesus. This blind man had to overhear all this stuff. He answered, and who is he, sirs? Look at what it says, that I may believe in him. I want to believe in him. 
I don't know if you've ever seen that before. When somebody's really ready to receive Jesus Christ, they're like, tell me, tell me about Jesus. I just want to know. I want to believe. When you're ready, you're ready. This man is ready. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you've seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. You have seen him. Well, uh, not for very long. He just got a new set of eyes, but Jesus is standing right in front of him. You've seen him. And, and he, Jesus clarifies, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah. He uses that title, Son of Man, a great title uh, for the Messiah. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's the right response. When your life is changed and now you can spiritually see, you worship. This is the characteristic of somebody who, who was once lost and now can, was found, who was blind, but now can, help me out, see. He worships. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. If you remember back earlier in John's gospel, he said that he didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. So what's he talking about? Uh, he's referring here that there's just a natural judgment that comes when you're blind and now you can see, when you're lost and then you're found. There's just a division that will happen, a separating between the sheep and the goats, there's a difference that's going to happen in your life. And he's not referring to the final judgment here. He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, those who are spiritually blind, may see. And those who see, Jesus uses a lot of paradoxes, see may become blind. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I remember people telling me stuff, hey, uh, Ryan, uh, the Christian life is a paradox. And as I started reading in the New Testament, I started realizing that is absolutely true. Jesus says stuff like this. If you want to live, you're going to die. Uh, if if uh, when you're weak, you are, help, help me out. When you're weak, you're, you're strong. There's so many paradoxes in the Christian life. Uh, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, Jesus says, for my sake, you're going to find it. Uh, Jesus is speaking in paradox. Uh, he's dealing with blind and, and then the seeing physically, seeing uh, Pharisees. And he goes on in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Uh, they were probably nearby. Are, are, are we blind? They physically can see just fine, and they're kind of messing with Jesus. And the answer they would expect Jesus to say is, no, you're not blind. You know, you're so smart. You're so, you have so many rules and regulations figured out. Um, but the answer is, yeah, you are blind. But look how Jesus again answers this. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let me slow that down like a sharp corner. Uh, we want to slow down and, and explain it and help you get through it. So Jesus said to them, if you were blind, 
I think what he's saying is, if you were conscious of your spiritual blindness, because they have physical sight, I think he's saying, if you were conscious of your spiritual blindness, you don't, if you were conscious of it, that you were blind, then you could see. If you were conscious that you were spiritually blind, you would have no guilt because you'd place your faith in Jesus. And me. And, but now that you say, we see, because they're acting like they are not spiritually blind, we see just fine, he says, your guilt remains. That's judgment. That's saying there's no mercy for you. So let's look at three blind spots that are common in the life of the Pharisees, and I would say for professing believers even today. Number one would be, the very simple one would be pride. Uh, the Pharisees were incredibly prideful. And uh, I want to share with you, uh, just pride is, uh, pride is incredibly, uh, it doesn't seem like a big sin, but it is a big sin. Proverbs chapter 8, Proverbs chapter 16, it's at the very top of the list of what God hates. It's not uh, fornication, it's not uh, drunkenness, it's not stealing, it's not lying. The very top of the list, what God hates for us is pride. It's number, numero uno, for those of you who speak Spanish. It's number one. That's the number one issue common blind spots of Pharisees and professing believers today. Let me tell you what I learned about pride, what flag football taught me about pride. I, for years, my son played flag football, and it was his dream. He was going to be in the NFL like every other kid. You know, well, like, keep trying, buddy, every day. It's a big, long road ahead of you, but let's go for it, you know. So he's doing flag football, loves flag football. I'm on the sidelines. And as a parent, you know, you're not, and who creates these rules? You're not supposed to keep score, but we know we're keeping score. And, and the kids aren't supposed to keep score. The coaches aren't supposed to be keeping score, but we're all keeping score. And then at the end, if we win, we're like, we won. And they're like, no, no, it's a good game, good game. Uh, but pride rears up, and I see in pride, you know, I saw pride in me that I would be so proud if my son caught the ball. Yeah, that's my boy. All of a sudden, if they threw the ball and it bounced off his head, I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> right, you get, is, where's the concession stand? <laughs> but the, did you see my boy? He, he made that touchdown. That was my boy. I'm on the sideline doing the, high, the reels, the highlight reels. Wow! And all of a sudden, it hits his head. Bang! Oh, we're done. <laughs> um, pride. And then uh, pride is, though, on a more serious note, though, it, it, pride, uh, I want to talk to you about the unholy trinity of pride. I think first is self-deception. Um, this is what we see in the life of the Pharisees, John 9, 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Come on, Jesus. Are we blind? Because I can see you, we're not blind. Uh, actually, they're incredibly self-deceived. This is what you see all the time with big, the, the big athletes. I mean, I can think of uh, different interviews, the, you know, pre-fight when the boxers line up. I'm the biggest, I'm the baddest. 
and that, I'm the best in the world, baby. And they get out there and like, bam. And you're like, what happened to that? You were not the biggest and the baddest. You may be for a little bit, but self-deception, we can easily be self-deceived. Proud parents can do this if their kids are, they want to believe the best in their kids and their kids are not doing well and they want to deny it and act like it's not happening. Or, you know, um, I can think back in my life when I was rebelling and going through all sorts of crazy rebellion. My parents didn't want to acknowledge the fact that I was just, I was unhinged. I was not doing well. Um, there's a self-deception that we can all kind of self-deceive ourselves, and it's incredibly prideful because we don't want to admit that things are going wrong. Second, un, uh, pride's unholy trinity is comparison. Uh, this is where John chapter 9, verse 28, and they reviled him, uh, saying to the blind guy, uh, when they were interviewing him, you're his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. They're trying to compare, you know, hey, we've got the, the believer's heritage, the long pedigree. We come from the family of faith. You don't. It's comparison. Uh, pride will call, uh, will create an attitude of comparison and which leads to envy where you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. Uh, this is what the Pharisees did a lot of. This is what believers today do a lot of. We look at uh, other people's lives and go, well, I'm not as messed up as they are. Or we're better than that church. Or it just happens in the home where you're looking at Facebook or you're looking at Instagram and you're like, man, these people's lives are amazing. Mine sucks. What am I doing? And it's all comparison. Pastors can compare themselves. Man, I... We've been going for 10 years. I thought I was, we were going to be so much further. Look at that guy down the road. Man, why are they doing so good? What's wrong with me? Comparison. Another one is what I call Matthew 7.3 is the log eye disease. Jesus says, why do, you look, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is where we oftentimes look at other people's problems and just go, man, you're really messed up, man. You're really messed up. You got some issues, bro. And then you realize, like, wait a second, when they're telling you that, you're like thinking, like, what about their life? Um, over the years, we've had people, you know, say things about different people in our church and this go on or that go on. And remember one time this guy's attacking one of our staff members or elders about their personal life and going through and talking about how he saw something or did something. And then we just did a little bit of further conversation and investigation and find out the guy's life was a complete train wreck. He had all sorts of other issues that were going on in his life, but for whatever reason, with his own drawing, he did not want to bring that to the table and bring that, any of those issues up. But he was easy to accuse and point out the other issues in different people's life. Log eye disease. This is why when somebody uh, comes to you and says, hey, uh, I see this in your life, the immediate response can be is defense and then project the problems on everybody else. So, you know, it uh, can be a, a vicious cycle. My wife 
says, hey, I'd really appreciate it if you just pick up around the house more. Lately, it seemed like you've been so messy. The log eye diseases could be turned around, and, and then I could say, well, what about your life? You know, you left all this out. You left all that out. You do this. You do that. And then you just you go back and forth. A second one, identifying the blind spot, would be his legalism. Uh, the Pharisees were incredibly legalistic. Um, look what it says in, in John chapter 9, verse 16. There's what I call extra rules and extra fences. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Uh, they had uh, a lot of different uh, ideas about the Sabbath. They had created in the Mishnah a lot of extra rules and regulations about keeping the Sabbath. And that was something you were to keep and to honor. Jesus shows up and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples did things different on the Sabbath. They would heal people on the Sabbath. And according to their extra rules, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. You couldn't you could pull an ox out of a ditch if you were, uh, uh, saw somebody ox in a ditch, but you couldn't get medicine for a friend, and you especially couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. There was re- rules and regulations on how fast you walked, how fast uh, <clears throat> you got to bed. I mean, everything. There was rules, extra rules about it. Uh, God's Word does have boundaries. It does have rules, and it does have fences. Like the Bible says, do not get drunk. And then a lot of times what happens in today's time is we add extra rules and go, well, if God says don't get drunk, let's just add an extra rule on that and say don't drink at all. Or God's word says do not fornicate. And you're like, yeah, that's a good rule to have. Do not fornicate, don't commit adultery. But then people can come along in legalism and add an extra rule on top of that and say, well, you need to dress a certain way. You can't watch these kinds of movies. You cannot dance. You cannot do all these extra things. You've been there before? That's called old school legalism. It's changed today. It's not, we have a new school of legalism. I'll read to you some new legalism uh, things that I see. And many of my friends are in these circles. And I'll just name a few. New legalists or Pharisees um, we use terms like uh, people come to me and ask, is your church missional? I'm like, what do you mean by that? And they say, well, are you uh, attractional or missional? And missional means that if you're missional, just so you know, in evangelical Christian culture, it means that you're about the mission of God and you want to you wanna, you wanna do all sorts of different, uh, every Christian is a missionary. And that's really true in so many ways. It's so true. But if you don't use the buzzwords, you're not in. So literally, I mean, there was a time in the last 10 years where people would say, if that church isn't missional, man, I can't be a part of it. I'm like, what, what do you mean? How about if our church isn't about Jesus, I can't be a part of it? That would be better. So when people show up at our church and then ask questions like, are you gospel-centered? What do you mean by gospel-centered? Well, I mean, do you read about Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and all these guys, do you read all that and do you know all that and can you pontificate large theological categories and phrases and do you study and do you do, you do that? Are you into the Reformation? Are you not? Are you gospel-centered? I think there can, there, all of those things are really good, but there can be a legalism around that. If you're not in that crowd, you're not good or you're not faithful or 
how about this? The radical Christians that are frustrated with the larger megachurch and they think that buildings and budgets are not good. Or how about the crazies Christians that are crazy in love with Jesus Christ and if you don't have a crazy lifestyle that you don't give it all up and go in for God that you're just not strong enough in your Christian faith. I hear that. Or how about the organic Christians that say, you know, my faith is just organic. I like uh, house churches. I don't think the organized church is great. I think that can be a new school of legalism. And as Christians, we've got to be very careful with that. I think there's truth in all of those movements. But when you uh, tend and trend to look at that's the essence of spiritual life, then you're in trouble. It's unhealthy. The last uh, blind spot that I want to share with you is about this is uh, we see in the life of the Pharisees and the professing believers is they just won't accept the truth. Uh, They will pretend that it's not happening or they will defend. Uh, They defend their old traditions, their old ways. They've missed the truth when it was right in front of them. They chose their traditions over their faith. They failed to see the truth was right before their eyes. They rejected the truth about Jesus because of their false assumptions, their lack of knowledge about the Messiah. And as a result, they rejected the truth. They were blinded by their pride, their self-righteousness, their traditions, their false interpretation of the word. Uh, They just wouldn't accept it. This is what they say, looking back at that verse in John 9, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He's not. Uh, They don't want to see or they don't want to hear the truth. And that is what is characteristic even in our generation. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 warns us about this, that we, uh, in in the last days, uh, there will be an apostasy. There will be fallout among uh, cultural Christians or professing Christians. This is what it says, folks don't want to hear the truth, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They don't want to listen. This is why oftentimes I've told you before as a Christian today who wants to make a difference in the lives of people, you need grace and truth. It's not a truth crusade. You need both, but people need grace and truth. People have turned away from basic logic. You can go to any high school, public school, and you'll find what they're teaching in sociology, psychology, to be absolutely incompatible with what's taught in biology. And there, there is no adherence to a value of truth. And in Christian culture today, we've in so many ways, abandon the truth. During the last few years, during the pandemic, during the uh, racial tensions, political tensions, medical tensions, I can't tell you how many folks I've seen that have said, I don't want to hear the argument from the Bible. I just want to do what I want to do because I believe it's right for me. And I'm like, but doesn't the Bible trump everything? No, not necessarily. There are individuals, and we can be suspect to this, who just don't want to accept the truth. Some of you guys maybe remember uh, A Few Good Men, that old movie. Uh, 
Jack Nicholson is on the stand and he's being investigated about a decision he made and in wartime and he says you want the truth and then Tom Cruise says I think I'm entitled to it and Nicholson says you can't handle the truth I watched that clip this morning and my daughter walks in she's like dad what are you doing this is weird I was like that was a classic saying you, you can't handle the truth you don't want the truth I think there's some truth to that so we all got blind spots. Uh, I listed three, pride, legalism, and don't want to accept or won't accept the truth. Pharisees, they're guilty of it altogether. You and me, we can easily fall into a pharisaical, accidental position where we think we're better than somebody else, where we tend or trend to think that our way is the best way. Um, and there's a lot of liberty in the Christian life, amen? There's a lot of liberty in the Christian life. The Bible, to, it gives us rules, right? But when you create all the extras, that's legalism. Stick to the basics. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I do pray as we prepare our hearts for communion and, and giving, uh, Lord, that we would rest in your grace. We thank you that it's amazing. We thank you that we can be redeemed, restored. Thank you that when we're lost, we can be found. When we're blind, we can see. Thank you for the transformation, the power of the gospel, Lord, that saves and sanctifies. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.